You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... We had a small problem with the first minute or so of recording, so we're going to just jump in directly to our interview with Patricia Cornwell. Enjoy it. Um, although I do think we have special difficulties today that that we didn't have back when I was getting started. There were a lot more publishing houses and bookstores, for example, but it's never it's never easy. Talking about that difference between art and neurosis, um, a lot of beginning writers will write their first novel or two, and and it is almost like holding a mirror up to themselves, and they're just working through all sorts of personal issues and uh, venting and just airing you know grievances, and you, 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 we've all read those sorts of novels. Um, but as a writer goes on with with his or her career, you you know that all of the stories that they write have pieces of them in in the stories. Um, and and I know that you know the case Scarpetta was was you know probably comes from a place that you are familiar with at least, and 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 I would imagine, uh, though I don't know, that there are pieces of Patricia Cornwell all through those books. What is the difference between? letting pieces of you into the story and that mistake that a lot of new writers make where there's too much of them in the story. I think the difference is that it's like being um, a parent, uh, something that I don't know myself because I don't have children, but a parent, your children have your DNA, but what you're not supposed to do is live your life through those children. Right. And, and that everything that you think and believe and, 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 you know, strive for you impose upon them. Now there are parents that do that and it doesn't work out very well as you know. And it's so you can't do that as a creator of a work of art either, whether it's um, a Michelangelo sculpture or a Dickens novel or a Da Vinci, um, you know, drawing, whatever it is, the artist, the person who's in control of that story rendering is supposed to be an engineer. You're supposed to be respectful about the process and be mindful of the audience and also be mindful of what that story wants to be. You know, even when you're writing fiction, um, I believe that you have to tell the truth. And, and it's a funny thing about it. If you really um, are in tune with the process the way you should be, sometimes it will not do what you want it to do. It goes a different way and you should listen. As you know, I mean, sometimes it knows better than you do, Um, That's which is a different thing than being out of control, if you know what I mean. But um, I think that you, uh, you know, James Joyce got away with writing that that early developmental portrait of an artist as a young man. However, I dare say that's a beautiful piece of engineering. Um, I don't I don't think people want to read drivel. Um, They don't any more than I want to overhear most people's cell phone conversations. I just, I'm not, you know, if if I'm going to sit down and read a book, I expect to be transported someplace that I'm better off because I've gone. 
whether it's right. I've learned about some amazing life I didn't know about, or I've gone to a new place and done a new thing and come away different for it. And it was worth not just the, the money you put into it, but most of all, worth the time. Um, you know, I value my reader's time. In addition to the, you know, the money that they kindly would spend on one of my books, I don't want to waste either one. But most of all, I don't want to waste their time. Right. Uh, Patricia, where where do you think your love of thrillers comes from? I, you know, Halloween was my favorite time of year when I was a little kid. I loved the costumes and I loved, you know, there's when I, when I was a storyteller in my neighborhood. Like I said, you start out doing what you end up doing. And I was always the favorite babysitter. Um, I started babysitting when I was like 11, back in the days when it was uh, safe to, to be picked up by strangers um, and go someplace and come home many hours later for, for a whopping 30 cents an hour. I was the hottest babysitter in my 200-person <laughs> town because the kids, they, they would not let me stop telling stories the whole time I was there. And I realized very early on that I could scare the pants off of people. And I remember one time, I, I mean, I, for some reason, I would get into these spooky, scary places. And as my imagination was, has always been spooky, I guess. Um, and it's very funny because when I was writing stories when I was a little kid, my favorite phrase was all of a sudden. You know, you'd be walking by the street light and all of a sudden. And and so clearly that had the thriller in me way back then. In fact, if I ever write my memoir, I should call it all of a sudden because that that was that was in the that was in the making from the beginning. That'll be fantastic if you do that. that that'll be amazing. Uh, Patricia, I love to ask people um, about about place and how a sense of place has uh, interesting ways of turning up in in people's writings and in the stories that we tell and and sometimes it's very specific um, and kind of uh, surface and sometimes it's below the surface and how a a place has a way of um, the 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 attitudes of the people and things like that have a way of coming into the story. Um, I know that in, in Autopsy, the 25th K. Scarpetta book, um, you return to where it all started mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and back to Virginia. Um, and I, I think I heard a story a while back about the, the reasoning why you came back and why it was so important for you to, to come back. W- what is it about that place and, and, and how it affects this story and, and these characters? Well – Without without the place in this story, you would not have any of the psychological landscaping that we have, and it would not it wouldn't the story would not really be worth telling in my opinion. And when I decided to after you know I quit writing Scarpetta five years ago, and I really truly was never going to do it again. Um, but when at, during the pandemic, after I had I'd written a revision of the Ripper book, and then I did two space thrillers. And now we're all in lockdown and, and nobody's making any decisions or doing anything quickly, including publishing houses at the moment. And I had some time on my hands to think about what I wanted to do next, as I also wondered what the fate of the universe was. I mean, because we've never seen anything like these last couple of years. And um, I thought, what would Scarpetta do if I mean, really, if I were going to write something with her again, what would she be dealing with? What, and what would she say about all of this? Um, and I started playing around with the idea of doing that, but I realized if I do it, I really have to start her all over. 
I can't pick up where I left off in Massachusetts or whatever. I need to really, truly get rid of all the backstory, just pare things down to her and her merry band of characters and have them all right under each other. I move them back to Virginia, but not Richmond. I wanted her Northern Virginia because she's got big connections in Washington and has a national platform at this level with her, you know, the expertise that she has. And so, but by doing that, as you know, she gets back to where she started from. And not only are there people that don't remember her anymore, there are a lot of people don't want her around because they've set up their fiefdoms. It's been decades. Things have been running to the ground, but also run a certain way. And politics are, are thick and full of thorns. And she, um, you know, it's just like in postmortem, if you think back to that, she came from Miami and she was a stranger riding into town and they didn't want her there either, especially back in the days of the old South, this woman of all things. Um, <laughs> so now she rides back into town decades later and she's a stranger for different reasons. And um, and that that gives it that the sort of emotional grit that it really needs. It gives you traction as she marches forward, trying to clean up the messes that were left and dealing with this serial killing case that nobody's even acknowledged as a serial killer out there. Um, And also dealing with something that happens, you know, in outer space, you know, 250, 60 miles above our planet where uh, we we have a disaster up there that that only she can really uh, deal with remotely from Earth. When when you uh, wrote Chaos, the twenty fourth K Scarpetta book, um, when and you talked about that that as far as you knew at the time, you were finished writing this character in 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 this series, um, and then as we now know with Autopsy, you've come back. Um, when you have a character that's so long lasting and that you've been on so many wonderful adventures with and and readers come to love uh, a character like that and feel like that she's a part of their life. Um, what is that? What is that decision like to say, I'm not going to write this character again? And then and then I guess the, the other side of that, what is that decision like when you decide that that, you know, time has passed, my my feelings have changed. I'm ready to take this up again. Well, it was there was a big thing to do because um, you're not welcomed back as much as you might think in terms of oh hey I've been gone five years you say to your uh, to your former publisher uh, let's do another Scarpetta book well they they may want to do it but don't think the terrain is the same as it was I mean you you know I when I left um, I not only left thinking I was not ever going to do another Scarpetta book, but I left and went to Amazon to do two space thrillers, um, which of course those books were boycotted by, by all of the bookstores because of, of them being Amazon. And so I knew I wasn't planning on going back anywhere. If you get my drift, I wasn't, right. I wasn't burning bridges, but I wasn't maintaining bridges. Cause I really thought that, that I was going in a different direction. And ultimately I wanted to write for film and TV and not do books anymore. I mean, I've written over 40 books. Um, Not all, a few of them weren't published in the early days, but, you know, honestly, from my senior year of college until now, I've almost pretty much done one a year, even if, I mean, that's kind of crazy to think about. So I, I didn't think I would be coming back. Now, now that 
So then when I decided that I would and HarperCollins said, okay, we'll do a contract, Let's, you can do this. I thought, well, this is a big responsibility because I don't want to disappoint the Scarpetta fans that will be glad to see her again. And furthermore, I would like to figure out a way to, to really appeal to the earlier Scarpetta fans too, and also to people who've never read a single one of these books. And the problem with the series is it's daunting to ask someone to, to, you know, to ask someone to pick up the 25th in a series. Their first thought is, oh my God, do I have to watch, read the other 24 first? Um, <laughs> and here's what I can tell you emphatically. No, no, a thousand times no. You really don't have to with any of them, but for sure you don't with this one. With Autopsy, it's a relaunch. It's sort of like a favorite TV show that went away and it's come back. And it has a lot of things that you remember, but you still you're starting it all over again because you are assuming that most people that tune in have not seen the earlier right. manifestation of that. And so I wrote this with that in mind and capturing, I think, the fun things from the earlier days while introducing a lot that's new and rather thrilling, because let's be honest, if someone's going to die in outer space, I mean, who better to deal with it than Scarpetta? Exactly. exactly. And, and speaking of that, you know, I'll, with the series that began in the 90s, um, technologically, the world has changed a lot since then. And uh, with a character like Scarpetta, who is constantly evolving and growing um, with the the um, the field of work that she's in, uh, as well as the rest of the world around her, um, you know, as, as a writer, how do you, you know, maintain um, technological growth uh, through your characters as as you go as well. What what is it? What's it like for you to to stay abreast of uh, of everything so that you can stay on the cutting edge of telling well, these kinds of stories? You know, um, I, and this is I would give this as a great word of advice to other writers. Um, you see, I live in the world I write about. My, the the people who are my best consultants are also my friends. Um, that's what happens. I mean, if you work with people at NASA, if you work with people at the Secret Service and and you, you know, and if you are well intended and they are well intended, you end up being friends with these people. And that's been one of the coolest things in my life over these many decades now is that I have gotten to know a lot of really cool people who do cool jobs. And and my attitude is, look, I want Benton Wesley to be a Secret Service uh, forensic psychologist. Um, you know, what? what is it like to be Secret Service? Help me to learn this and show me what you want me to see. And so these people become my friends. So I'll call them up to, just to see how they're doing. And they'll, then they'll tell me about the latest this or that or the other. Um, it's how, you know, the whole thing with Lucy and the avatar, you know, the artificial right. intelligence that she's gotten into, that whole idea uh, came from a NASA friend of mine who sent me a video of this actual type of artificial intelligence in programming, which is beyond mind boggling. When I looked at the video of this bearded computer wizard talking to the avatar, a young guy, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was two actors because I, I you couldn't have made me believe that that was really not a real person, this avatar. And that's when I realized the potential. I mean, really what we're talking about is people are creating reverse programming humans. And in right. cyberspace, at least, 
um, if you put all these attributes together, people in a lab, they can create somebody that looks like you and talks like you. Um, and it's all based on knitting together video and all this data. But it's you've seen probably some samples of this yourself, but it's mind boggling. But so I get these ideas not only because I follow a lot of technical things on the Internet, but I'm friends with people who do it for real. And, and, and you get it, a lot of it through osmosis, particularly if you're, if you're interested in it, and I am, I'm interested in all of this, quantum computing, you name it. Why? Because I'm interested in the world we live in and what it really is and what does it mean? Um, you know, living, dying, all of it here, what is it about and who are we? Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com Speaking of that, um, you know the the picking up by os- osmosis. If you if you ask people um, advice about writing, most of the time people will tell new writers, "Well, you need to read a lot, and you need to write a lot. You, you need to kind of understand um, how the the uh, the art form uh, has been done, and and then mm-hmm. just practice, practice, practice." Um, I like to add a third element to that, and that's to to have conversations with people and listen, listen to uh, the way dialogue is spoken, the the way people communicate with each other, pick up on things that people say that, you know, people will tell you what's important if you just listen to them, Um, that uh, your dialogue in particular uh, across your books um, just really pops. There's, you know, people talk about uh, Patricia Cornwell's dialogue. Um, are, are there any secrets that you've, or any things that you've worked out? Yeah, I, I, guess, oh, I, I have dialogue? easy secrets. I have easy secrets. And and for all of the writers listening to this, trust me when I tell you, forgive me for saying it, but if you've been reading and writing ever since you were a little kid, <clears throat> because that's your nature, and you you don't need 
to keep reading and writing in order to write books, you need to go find a damn story. Um, that's when I say put on your Nancy Drew hat and go out and look at something and do something. Um, it, that is get get inspired by something. And if you're in, look, if you're interested in, in policing, for example, almost everybody knows somebody who knows a cop. Um, I mean, maybe you don't have access to the commissioner of NYPD or, or you know, or somebody at Interpol, but you, I bet you, you can find somebody in some, somebody somewhere they will let you ride around with a police officer or go visit a laboratory and see something or whatever it is you're interested in. Don't depend on just looking at the internet all the time. Um, I, I, and as far as dialogue, when I used to run around doing research all the time, but particularly when I was younger and did a lot more of it even than I do today, um, every, I was usually, oftentimes I was by myself and I would sit in a restaurant alone and I'd have my notebook out and I would be eavesdropping on the, the tables around me where I could hear what people were saying. And that's one of the ways I learned dialogue. Um, I listen to what people say instead of using dialogue as a way of transmitting information. Um, and if you really get good at it, you end up being able to do both. But you have to do it in a way that the, per the reader doesn't even know you're doing it. Um, and that comes from listening to how people really talk. And if you're a journalist in particular, you should be doing that anyway. So now if you're talking about a scientist, let's say that you've got a physicist um, who's worked in the space program and he thinks that he, sh he wants to write novels. That's the person I would say, baby, you don't need to do a whole lot of research. You need to go put your nose in a bunch of books and read and read and write and write and start learning because this is just as hard as rocket science is. Um, and, and I think that's why there's a lot of people that do those things for real that aren't writing um, as many wonderful books as might be written out there is because they're not doing they're not doing that homework. And people who are gifted writers sometimes aren't doing the homework of going out and finding a story or letting the story find you. Um, and if you don't do that, then what happens is you're kind of just you're kind of data mining your own life. And right. after a while. That's not very interesting to other people, and you're going to run out of stories if you don't all, if you didn't from the get go. In in reading your uh, you know through your back catalog, uh, Patricia, it it seems that you love a challenge, um, and you love to come up with difficult situations and then uh, let your characters figure out how to solve them and how to get out of this trouble that they found themselves in. In autopsy, you mentioned earlier that that we have a crime scene hundreds of miles above the earth in, in space. Um, did, were, were you thinking about, you know, what's the most difficult thing that I could have Scarpetta do? And, you know, let's have her solve a crime where she's, you know, can't go to the, to the location. Um, that, that seems like it would be a great problem to, to start thinking, well, that, you know, how, you know, how do we work our way out of this? See, that's the beauty of all this things that seem so inaccessible and impossible maybe aren't if you just start looking into it. And when I started doing the research for the two Captain Chase books that I did, you know, basically I've done five, past five years, I've been researching um, aerospace and all these things, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, autonomous flight, you know, all the high, high tech, everything that you're seeing this day and age. Um, but if you really start getting into that, then you see the it wasn't that hard to imagine what Scarpetta would do with a death up there, because if you understand 
blood spatter, for example, if you understand the physics of what death does to people and how those details are used by someone like Scarpetta to recreate how somebody received those injuries and died, and maybe even who did it. If you if you understand how that works, then space is simply, it's the same thing except for a very big difference. You don't have gravity up there. So fluids are not gonna work the same way. Blood is not gonna work the same way. Um, what the body looks like after death is not gonna be the same in, in, in certain aspects. And so I, I simply, you again, an osmosis kind of process by going out and looking into things and learning and reading what's on the internet. I was able to imagine what would happen if she worked a scene in space. So the combination of of the space research and um, it's not as impossible to do. There's so much available on the internet and there are places where you could probably go and see rocket launches if you want to, if you need to. I mean, there are ways to learn without it being taxing and incredibly expensive or or just flat out impossible um you know and then i just i, I we know this is going to happen sometime it's going to happen thankfully right. nobody's died on the space station after all these decades but um there, there are other orbiters that are going to be up there uh, laboratories but in particular in the commercial industry there's so much planned for low earth orbit and above um, that it's just a matter of time when we put people on the moon, there, there's going to be death. And um, so what, what would someone like Scarpetta do? What can she tell remotely as long as, and in the case of, of, of the scene that I have in autopsy, she simply guides, there's two astronauts that come over to this imperiled uh, orbiter, and this is not science fiction, this could be done, and, and pretty soon for sure it could be done. The space plane I described really exists, the dream chaser. And then she simply directs them to what to do inside so that she can find out the information she needs to figure out what happened to these people. And um, it was a challenge. You're right. But if you're going to keep writing books, I can't keep just doing the same thing over and over again. I'm, I mean, you want something new and different that puts her through her paces right down to when she goes out to those railroad tracks and she's spraying them down with luminol because she's looking for a, fa a false positive for copper because of something that she has a hunch about. Um, all of this is taking the research and exploration that I continue to do and have always done and finding out new algorithms and puzzles to turn it into the same way Agatha Christie was doing. I mean, by the way, she was the best puzzler the puzzle Absolutely. creator ever there ever was, but um, I can't say it enough. I, I know that it's a lot of people think you don't you don't need to do a lot of research, but I'm sorry to tell you, if you want to be the best in your business, if you want to be the best at what you do, then you got to go learn a few things. Don't right. don't. I mean, what makes you think you could write about a forensic pathologist or an astronaut or a journalist or a mother? or a special education teacher or anything, if you've never tried to even walk one block in their moccasins. Um, and, and that to me is the key. And if you do that, I promise you wonderful stories will find you. That's fantastic advice. Um, Patricia, I know a, a few minutes ago, you said that uh, 
after writing the 24th Scarpetta book um, that you said that you really wanted to focus on writing for for television and and film. Um, did I see recently that there's some big news uh, for Scarpetta on this on the uh, on the oh. TV screen? Well, there is very. Yes, there's exciting, exciting news um, in that, you know, after all these years. And by the way. She is the ultimate runaway bride when it comes to Hollywood. Um, <laughs> the first Scarpetta option, believe it or not, goes back all the way to 1989. Oh, when, my goodness. And, and after that, you know, it was one thing after another. And nobody, it just never, it was never, nobody ever seemed to get her. And the scripts were never quite right. And I even tried my hand at it. But it, it, that's, I should keep my day job. Um, but <laughs> what's happened is Jamie Lee Curtis um, is a friend of mine, and she has read a number of the Scarpetta books and has interviewed. We've done chats together several times in the past, and she's now got a production company with a deal with Blumhouse, which is a huge production um, entity, and uh, for sure you'd know them for their Halloween movies of late. And sure. so they have optioned the Scarpetta series for television, and so we're in the early day, early early stages of trying to build this from the ground up of how this is going to work, who's going to be the showrunner, where's where's going to, you know, where's going to be the home for it for the early stages. But I do believe that this is in really excellent hands. And I think that we're finally going to see her on TV. And it will probably be something that's very different from what we imagined because the Scarpetta that we all met in 1990, I mean, that world is, is may as well be another planet. Um, compared to where we are today. And and also storytelling has changed and binge watching and streaming. One thing's one thing I've been learning the hard way because of binge watching, uh, you know, it's always been a very masterful device with most thriller writers is that you end with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Um, you always want to keep people coming back for the next installment. Well, people don't like that anymore. Um, they want to, they want all of it at once. And so how how this will all unfold is going to be different than it would have been 10 years ago, for sure, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and I'm excited to see what new creative perspective, what a new creative perspective may bring to this character and, and her and her sidekicks. You know, I, that's going to be fun. Well, Autopsy, uh, like you said, is a relaunch of the Scarpetta series, um, and we can't have a relaunch if this is going to be the only um, the, the only additional chapter we get. So, what what else is coming up for for Scarpetta and crew? Well, I'm I am as we speak. I'm working on the next story um, in the early stages of of what follows after Autopsy, um, and she's still in Old Town. She's the chief, but it's going to be. So some months later and, um, you know, where she's in the middle of yet another nightmare situation uh, that that is going to I'm very excited about the new story. Uh, it's going to be really cool, I think. Again, bringing in some things you've never seen before while grossing you out with all the usual. <laughs> <laughs> so, what we've come to love and Because um, this is but most people wouldn't know this autopsy. The reason I call the book Autopsy is not just because of, hey, you know, we know what that's about. Um, it's going to be the medical examiner again. It's also because the people don't know this, but in a fascinating way, 
um, I'm happy to tell you that the root of, of that word, the Greek word autopsia is, is where this word comes from. And what it really means is to see for yourself, like sort of like auto see, autopsia, to see for yourself. And that's the whole point of an autopsy is that you, the doctor goes in there, you opens like they used to say in the old days, you unzipper the person and you look and you see what what happened here. What did that bullet do or, or what? What, why did this person keel over? Um, and that, that's what this means. And that's the key to Scarpetta's success as a forensic pathologist and a sleuth is no matter what, she's always got to see it for herself. She's going to show up because she, it's not going to take someone else's word for it. And it's always that one little thing that nobody else thinks matters that ends up being what changes, you know, that wins the day. When you're hearing this episode, Autopsy is on sale everywhere and available for you to go and pick up and see for yourself uh, just what Scarpetta and crew are up to. Um, Patricia, I love the book. I love Thank the whole you. series. And, Thank um, you so much. Absolutely. If people are just discovering you, if there's one reader out there who's never read a Patricia Cornwell book, God forbid, um, where can they find you online and dig into all the amazing stuff that you're up to? Oh, absolutely. They can follow me on Twitter. I'm at, it's 1P Cornwell, and I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and and, and I, I, I follow a lot of people back on, on Twitter in particular. I'm, I'm very much into other writers and artists, particularly people who are sort of getting started because I know what that feels like. And, you know, I've been at my first book. Can you believe that I was writing my very first publishable book uh, 40 years ago? Isn't that scary? 1981 <laughs> was when I got my contract for the Ruth Graham biography and started that. So I, I say, you know, I've been out there long enough that I'm happy to, in limited ways, best I can manage it, try to encourage others and uh, give back because storytellers are the most important people we have on this planet. And don't you ever forget it. Um, and that, and I encourage it and um, I'm happy to, to, to share with people as best I can. Absolutely. Autopsy available when you're hearing this. Uh, everywhere you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. Uh, Patricia, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of Autopsy. Thank you. Um, thanks for talking to me. I've really enjoyed it. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. I was 10 years old when I saw my first ghost. The year was 1770. My father was a barber. He kept a small shop at the Kuenhoven Inn, where the King's Road met the Old Loop. Our modest home lay to the north, between the inn and the hanging tree. A simple box of pine boards, whitewashed with crushed oyster shell, one room with a spinning wheel for mother, a chair for father, and up a ladder of branches, a garret where my parents slept. I slept on the floor below, alongside my little brother, Hans, five years younger than I. Our floor sloped toward the Hudson, so that when Hans rolled over in his sleep, he often went on rolling and couldn't stop, collecting splinters and grievances. Yet on this particular night, he slept peacefully, and I was the fitful one. A mouse had taken shelter in our wall, fleeing the October chill. It scritched and scratched, nibbling a nest for itself. The sound thrilled me. 
I possessed a vivid mind, full of toadstools and bullfrogs and lightning storms, and so imagined a skeleton writhed in the wood. The bones of Anne Underhill, perhaps, murdered by Indians at Spook Rock. I'd heard that tale from my father, who reveled in the Dutch superstitions. He would gather us to fireside on winter nights and spin tales of the Heer of Dunderberg, that storm king who rattled our white windows, of the Lady of Raven Rock who died in snowfall, pining for her lover, of trolls beneath the penny bridge and hobgoblins in the hanging tree. He'd filled my head with such dark romance that I lay waiting for Anne's little finger bones to drag me off to some bloody fate. I rather hoped she would. A cloud cleared the moon, and a square of light fell on my mother's spinning wheel. The sharp spindle glinted, and the wheel began to turn, without touch. A figure appeared before me, as through a mist, a gray head bent to the work. She fixed me with eyes black as open graves and whispered in a low, guttural hiss, Spin, or you shall not eat. I cried out and fell to my pallet, arms over my head. Hans awoke, lost his balance, and rolled away, bleeding with pain as he struck the riverside wall. Father emerged above. Agatha, what is wrong? There's a ghost, Papa. A ghost, help me. Hans laughed despite his bruises, and Mother moaned and ordered us to sleep. But Papa descended and took my hands, his blue eyes twinkling. What did you see? An old woman, she said, spin or you shall not eat. Oh, he raised a candle beneath his chin. You saw old Willow. She lived here long ago, when this was the home of Isaac Hart, our candlemaker. Her husband was killed by savages. Hart took her in at the request of Lord Phillips, who paid a token sum for her upkeep. But Hart was greedy and kept the money for himself. He never fed her unless she spun. So Willow spun and spun and spun like a spider, year by year, growing old and blind and falling to waste. She died at that spinning wheel, fell over one day, and the spindle pierced her heart. Hans screamed and hid beneath the table. Mother appeared above. Daniel Van Ripper, you are a fool. I kissed Papa's fingers, for I loathed that spinning wheel. I'd be no toothless ghost, spinning and haunting little girls. I felt pity for such a spirit and gratitude to have her example before me, stealing my resolve. Every night thereafter, I would leave a crust of bread for old Willow and sleep with one eye open in case she came to spin for me again.